Hey, good morning, church. So glad that you're here this morning. Why don't you take your Bibles? Let's open up to uh, the book of Acts, chapter 1. Book of Acts, uh, chapter 1. And uh, when we planned out our Looking to Jesus series um, a little more than a year ago, uh, we had a good idea of where we would be by this point in the year, and by God's grace, we're right on track, right on schedule. And as we were uh, getting to uh, plan the final quarter of this year in 2018, uh, we started to realize that we had kind of like a bonus week. Um, we had a free week where it was just open, there was nothing planned, and, and so for the past five or six weeks, knowing that this week was coming up, I, I just started praying, Lord, um, where do you want us to be? What do you want us to see? What do you want to teach us? What do you want us to know? Um, just show us where you want us in your word to be. And like I pray every weekend for every message, every time we gather together, Lord, just help us to maximize the time that we have with one another. And, and there's a lot of different ways that we could go in God's word this morning that I think would be pleasing to him. Uh, but I believe that God has us back this morning in Acts chapter 1. And uh, if you were here last week, uh, you might remember we were in Acts chapter 2, and you're like, wait a second, Pastor, you're going the wrong way. Um, no, we're... we're we're here, and and uh, believe that God has us here in Acts chapter one, and uh, we're going to do something a little bit different than what we normally do. Uh, normally, we get into a passage and we go verse by verse through that passage. Uh, this morning, we're going to start in Acts chapter one and make our way through all the way to the end in Acts chapter twenty-eight, and we're going to go through the whole book of Acts and we're going to pull on the thread of prayer. All the way through God's word in the book of Acts, we're going to pull on this thread of prayer. And there's really two main things that I, I want for us to see as we do this this morning. The first thing is this. I want us to see the commitment that the early church made to earnest prayer. Earnest prayer. So not just any kind of prayer, not just um, I'll get to it when I can kind of prayer, not just you know I'll, I'll see if it fits into my calendar kind of prayer, not just a half-hearted kind of prayer. We're talking earnest prayer prayer. And as we go along this morning, we'll unpack a little bit more of what that means and what that looks like, but that's the first thing that I hope that we'll take from our time in God's Word together today, uh, the commitment of the early church to earnest prayer. And then from that flows the second thing that I hope we see this morning, and that is this, that when the church earnestly prays, God responds in extraordinary ways. When the church earnestly prays, God responds in extraordinary ways. That's the big idea. That's the theme that we're going to be seeing as we make our way through the book of Acts this morning, and particularly as it relates to prayer. And it actually rhymes, so how great is that, right? It's easy to remember. When the church earnestly prays, God responds in extraordinary ways. Because the reality is, I don't want, and our elders don't want, and I know that there are a lot of you sitting in this room right now, you don't want this to be a church that relies more on things like ministries and materials and methods to do the things that we need to do. And all the while, we end up missing, on the, missing out on the mighty power of the Spirit of God. We don't want that. And, and there's nothing wrong with ministries, nothing wrong with methods or materials. Those things have their place, but they should never have the first place within the life of the church. We want to be a church that sees the mighty hand of the power of God at work among us. We don't want to be a checkmark church, right? We don't want to be the place where you come and you show up and you sit down and you go through the motions and then you go home and then you come back next week and you do it all again. We don't want to be that kind of church. We want to be the kind of church where we see the mighty power of the Spirit of God at work among us. Samuel Chadwick was an amazing man of God. 
He was a hero of the faith. He was an English Methodist pastor in the early 1900s who saw God bring revival to several of the cities in which he pastored. He spoke about this. Listen to what he says. He says, For much that is undertaken by the church, he, meaning the Holy Spirit, is not necessary. The Holy Ghost is no more needed to run bazaars, social clubs, institutions, and picnics than he is to run a circus. Religious services and organized institutions do not constitute the Christian church, and these may flourish without the gift of Day of Pentecost fire. The Spirit has never abdicated his authority nor relegated his power. Neither Pope nor Parliament, neither conference nor council is supreme in the church of Christ. Listen to this. The church that is man-managed instead of God-governed is doomed to failure. A ministry that is college-trained but not spirit-filled works no miracles. The church that multiplies committees and neglects prayer may be fussy, noisy, and enterprising, but it labors in vain and spends its strength for naught. There is a superabundance of machinery. What is wanting is power. To run an organization needs no God. Man can supply the energy, enterprise, and enthusiasm for things human. The real work of a church depends upon the power of the Spirit. So I read that. I thought, Lord, help us. Like, Lord, help us to be a church that longs desperately for the power of the Spirit of God. Because isn't it true the temptation is so prevalent for all of us? Like for all of us, no matter what ministry you're a part of, no matter what kind of title you may hold, no matter what you do within the life of this church, the temptation is so prevalent for all of us that to rely on what Chadwick says, our own energy and our enterprise and our enthusiasm and not even realize until it's too late that the only place that that leads us is to be a church that is fussy, noisy, and weak. And nobody wants that. We don't want that. And so I pray as we make our way through the book of Acts this morning that we will see with clarity that when the church earnestly prays, God responds in extraordinary ways. The church that prays is the church that sees divine power. So let's start in Acts chapter 1, and we see from the very beginning in Acts chapter 1 that the church is praying. Take a look at Acts 1 verse 13. By the way, these passages as we make our way through the book of Acts this morning, they're going to be up on the screen. We won't have the full passage, we'll just have the reference, so follow along. You're going to need your page turning fingers this morning for your Bible as we make our way through. So we're going to start Acts chapter 1 verse 13. Jesus has just ascended into heaven, and the disciples now are gathered together. Notice what they're doing. Acts chapter 1 verse 13. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So Jesus has just left them. He's promised them the Holy Spirit. And now they're just waiting, they're gathered together and they're worshiping and they're praying, but this is not just a one-off prayer meeting. Notice again how verse 14 puts it. It says, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. 
That's a phrase that shows up three times early in the book of Acts. They were devoting themselves to prayer. And it literally means that they had an obstinate persistence in prayer. Like, how great is that? They had an obstinate persistence in prayer. They were unhindered in their commitment to prayer. They were earnestly praying for the Lord to do what only he could do. And don't miss how important this is because what's happening here in chapter one is really setting the trajectory for the rest of the life of the church because the church hasn't even born yet. They're not born until the next chapter, but this is setting the foundation for the rest of the life of the church. It's been said that if you want to know the future prayer culture of your church, just look at the current prayer culture of your church leaders. And I thought about that and it's like, as a pastor, that hits me like right between the eyes. Like, you want to know what to pray for me? You want to know what to pray for our elders? You want to know what to pray for our small group leaders and flock leaders and ministry leaders? You want to know what to pray for us? Pray that God grows in us an obstinate persistence for prayer. Pray that God grows in us an ongoing devotion for prayer. Pray that God helps us to understand that there will be nothing eternal or supernatural that happens in this church unless it happens through prayer. So as this group gathers together and they pray. They see God moving among them right away. Skip down to chapter 1 and verse 24. The apostles are seeking someone to take the place of Judas Iscariot. Chapter 1 verse 24 says, and they prayed and said, you Lord who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So they come together, and they pray, and God answers their prayer. God gives them the direction that they need. And it's in that spirit of dependence now that we go into Acts chapter 2. We looked at the first part of Acts chapter 2 last week. They're gathered together on the day of Pentecost. They're worshiping. They're praying. Verse 2 says that there comes from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It fills the place where they're gathered. And then divided tongues of fire appear to them and rest on each one of them. Like we just looked at this last week, but just try and picture again what must be happening here on this day of Pentecost. All of a sudden, there's a whole bunch of these like fire tongues that are just kind of hovering, like all over the place. And, and you look at the person sitting beside you, and like, what do you do in that moment, right? Like, you look at the person beside you, and you're like, excuse me, ma'am, but your head is on fire. Like, that's a bit of an awkward conversation, right? And then she looks back at you, and she's like, no, my head's not on fire. Your head's on fire. And, and you look around the room, and everybody's got these, like, fire tongues that are just hovering like over them in that moment. And, and from there, we go on into verse 4. And verse 4 of chapter 2 says, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so from there, people of all of these different nations and all these different languages are hearing in their own language for the very first time the wonder of what God has done for them in Jesus Christ. And from there, Peter stands up in this gathering of thousands of people. He preaches the gospel. And notice what happens next. Chapter 2, verse 37. Chapter 2, verse 37. It says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Like, wow, right? That is absolutely amazing. And let's not lose sight of what happened here. Like, this is Peter. Right? This is the guy who just a few weeks before denied that he even knew Jesus three times. And so now he walks out of this prayer meeting and he stands before thousands of people. He preaches the gospel with boldness and courage. He is clearly identifying himself with Jesus Christ and thousands of people get saved in one single day. Like that is amazing, but it's interesting, isn't it? That as you go and, and you keep following this thread, that for all of the success that the early church saw by that point, they realize they can't give up. Like they cannot give up on the power and the place of prayer within their gathering. So notice chapter two, verse 42. And they devoted themselves, there's that phrase again the second time, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. There it is again. And from there, there's this holy amazement that comes upon all of the people. Verse 43 goes on and says that signs and wonders are done in their gathering through the apostles. They have this uncommon community and this fellowship with one another that is primarily and unarguably held together by their common commitment to the word of God and to prayer. The church that prays together stays together. Chapter 3, Peter and John are going to the temple at the hour of prayer. They're going there to pray, and they end up healing a man who couldn't walk since the day that he was born. Chapter 3, verse 8 says that this guy didn't just stand up when Peter and John healed him. He actually leaps up. Like he, he jumps up and then he walks into the temple. He runs into the temple and he's leaping and he's dancing and he's praising the Lord because he can walk. He spent his entire life unable to walk. He can't even get up. And now he's running through the temple, leaping and praising God. And everybody in the temple is like, hey, that's the dude that's been sitting at the gate of the temple. And we walk by him every time we come in and he's begging for money because he can't get up. He can't walk. And now here he is in the temple. He's leaping and praising the Lord because he's been healed. Like it's a miracle right in front of them. And verse 10 says, they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened, at which point Peter stands up again in the midst of this crowd and he preaches the gospel again, which immediately gets the attention of the high priest and the leaders within the temple to the point where they recognize for themselves that there is something absolutely extraordinary Something very, very different that's taking place to the point where their summation of the whole thing that's happening in chapter 4 and verse 13. Notice their conclusion that they come to. Chapter 4, verse 13. says, Now when they, when the leaders in the temple, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Like they were uneducated, common men. So let's just pause right here and understand that what's happening so far in the first three and a half chapters of the book of Acts, early in the life of the church, that what's happening here is not, as Samuel Chadwick said, it's not according to their energy or to their enterprise or because of their enthusiasm. 
It is definitely not because of their education or their experience. It is not because of any of those things. The reason that these things are happening right now in the life of the early church is because ordinary people are staying close to an extraordinary God. And so we keep going. Skip down to chapter 4 and verse 23. Notice what happens next. When they were released... They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. So they pray. Again, persecution hits them. And the first thing that they do is pray. And look at what they prayed. Skip down to chapter 4, verse 29. This is what they pray. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Notice this. They're going through suffering and persecution. And they may have prayed for relief and for deliverance within that suffering and persecution, but they definitely prayed for the courage, the confidence, the boldness to continue to proclaim the gospel that got them into so much trouble in the first place. Like they just pray, God, help us to be faithful to you and to what you're doing. So they pray and the Spirit of God comes upon them in such power that they go from that place and they keep sharing the gospel with the people around them. So then we get to chapter 6. And it looks like there's a legitimate need within the life of the church that has the ability to distract the apostles from their primary responsibility of prayer and the ministry of the word to meet the needs in the church. And notice chapter 6 and verse 4. But we will devote ourselves, there's that phrase again for the third time, this is the apostles speaking, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now... Don't miss this. So they gather together and they pray. And not only does God give them wisdom and direction to choose new leaders for the church, and not only does God give them strength so that the impact of the word of God is multiplied many times over, and not only does God multiply the number of disciples within Jerusalem, but notice this, the end of verse 7, they pray, and a great many of the priests are getting saved. Like, God's people pray, and the power of God comes upon these spiritual leaders who have given their lives and their leadership to these dead and empty religions, and they are getting saved. Like, isn't that what we want to see? Isn't that what we want to see here in our city? Isn't that what we want to see here in our gathering? Like, people from all kinds of dead and empty religions that offer no hope for this life or for the life to come, people who are constantly giving their lives to the gods of themselves to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Like, understand, stuff like that doesn't happen because of their own energy or their enthusiasm or their 
enterprise. It doesn't happen because of their education or their experience. This happens as a result of God's people praying. This happens because when God's people earnestly pray, God responds in extraordinary ways. The interesting thing about all of this is that this resolute commitment to prayer just keeps pushing the church in the book of Acts right back into the heat of the spiritual battle. Like the more they pray, the more that the battle rages. Chapter 7, Stephen, one of the men chosen by the apostles to do the work in chapter 6, he ends up dying because of his faith in Jesus Christ. And standing there watching it all happen is this guy named Saul, who we would eventually come to know a little bit later in Acts as the apostle Paul. Chapter 8, even greater persecution comes against the church and they all scatter throughout the nearby regions and they're preaching the word of God and proclaiming the gospel and more people are getting saved. Flip ahead to chapter 10 and verse 44. Chapter 10, verse 44. Love the sound of the pages in your Bibles turning. That's fantastic. Chapter 10, verse 44. Peter and Cornelius are praying at the same time and even though they don't even know each other, and they don't know that the other is praying at the same time that they are, but they're praying at the same time, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, they're brought together. So chapter 10, verse 44, this is after Peter and Cornelius meet. Notice what verse 44 says. When Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. In other words... Here are the apostles, having been with Jesus and seen his power at work through them to save, by this point, thousands of people, and they've been praying, and now they're seeing the power of Jesus break through these racial and cultural barriers, and people that they never thought would have been saved are getting saved. Like, this is amazing. This is the power of prayer. So that takes us now to chapter 12. One of my favorite stories in the book of Acts. Maybe one of my favorite stories in all of the Bible. Chapter 12. King Herod is coming hard after the church. He kills James and throws Peter in prison for preaching the gospel. Now watch this. Verse 4 of chapter 12 tells us that there are four squads of soldiers who are guarding Peter. And there were four soldiers in a squad. So that means there's 16 soldiers who have the responsibility simply of guarding Peter. Verse 6 tells us that two of those guards were constantly physically chained to Peter the whole time. But sandwiched right in the middle of that is verse 5. Verse 5 says, So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. See that? Earnest prayer was made for him to God by the church. So this is earnest prayer. It's not half-hearted prayer. It's not I'll get to it when I can kind of prayer. It's not I'll see if it fits into my calendar and I'll get back to you kind of prayer. No, this is like I'm going to stop what I'm doing right now so that I can pray for this. This is like earnest, ongoing, persevering, crying out to God because we see and we know and we understand that only God can do this for us. We can't do this for ourselves. Even if we think we can do this for ourselves, we can't because God alone is the one who gives us everything that we need. So they're earnestly calling out to God. Notice what happens. Chapter 12, verse 7. An angel of the Lord comes into the cell where Peter is and wakes him up and tells him to get up quickly. And the end of verse 7 says, and the chains just fell off his hands. 
Like the chains are off of his hands. And then the angel leads him out of the cell. And Peter thinks he's dreaming the whole thing that's going on right now. Then the angel leads him out of the cell. And and they pass the guards. And this huge iron gate just opens in front of them all by itself. So first, the chains fall off his wrists. And then this massive iron gate opens just on its own. And at that point, the angel leaves Peter. And Peter realizes at that point that he's not actually dreaming this that this is actually happening right in front of him. He can't believe it. And so he goes, pick it up in chapter 12 and verse 12. Notice what it says. Verse 12, when he realized this, when he, Peter, realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Is that not amazing? And just a little bit hilarious. Like, I love this story. Like, Peter shows up at the door and he's like, and Rhoda, the servant girl, comes to the door and she answers and she sees Peter standing on the other side of the door, and she's like, (laughs) like, she can't believe it, right? And so she runs to the very back of the house to tell everybody in the back of the house that she sees what they've been praying for at the front of the house, and in the meantime, she leaves Peter Prison Breaker standing outside all by himself. She goes back and tells them, and they're like, Rhoda, you are cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. There is no way any of that is happening. So Peter, in the meantime, he's still standing at the front gate, and he's like looking around, making sure nobody can see him, nobody can hear him, and he's still like... And finally, everybody in the back of the house hears Peter knocking on the door at the front of the house, and they all run to the front of the house. They open the door. There's Peter standing on the other side of the door, and they're all amazed. They can't believe it because the one thing that they have been praying for has happened, and they know that the Lord has not only heard their prayer, but the Lord has answered their prayer. Like when the church of God earnestly prays, God responds in extraordinary ways, which leads us then into chapter 13, and to the church in Antioch, they gathered together and notice chapter 13 and verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Like of all that we have seen in the book of Acts so far, this may be one of the most powerful answers to prayer in the entire book because from here, the gospel will spread to parts of the world that have not yet heard the name of Jesus. And what happens at that prayer meeting at the church in Antioch has led to more than 2,000 years of missionary efforts 
all across the globe to the point now where heaven is populated with millions upon billions upon trillions of people all through the ages who have heard and responded to the good news of Jesus Christ. And that mission today is still moving forward. And that mission will continue to move forward until the Lord of that mission says that it's time for that mission to stop, at which point he will come and take us to be with him forever. So, From that prayer meeting, Paul and Barnabas go and they preach the gospel in new places and people are getting saved and they experience intense persecution and suffering. We keep going. Chapter 14, they appoint elders in the churches and with prayer and fasting, they commit these churches to the Lord. Chapter 16, Paul and Silas are thrown into prison for driving a demon out of a slave girl who was making money for her boss. And while they're in prison, they're singing hymns and they are praying to the Lord. And while they're doing that, an earthquake hits the prison, they are supernaturally delivered, and the jailer and his family come to know Christ. Chapter 20, Paul is leaving Ephesus and going to Jerusalem, having no idea what's going to happen to him when he gets there, except that much suffering awaits him, and with much weeping and sorrow and prayer, he says goodbye to the church in Ephesus. Chapter 21, same thing with the believers in Tyre. Chapter 27, Paul prays and he and his companions are saved from a dangerous situation at sea. Chapter 28, they pray and again the Lord heals a man who had been very sick and many others come forward and they are healed as well. And that brings us to the end of the book of Acts. From the beginning to the end, believing firmly in the power of prayer. Believing that when the church earnestly prays, God responds in extraordinary ways. And we look at this and never once do we see them depending on what Samuel Chadwick again calls their energy or their enthusiasm or their enterprise. We never once see them depending on things like their education or their experience. Again, over and over, we see them. When a need comes up, the people pray and God responds. And again, isn't that what we want to see here? Isn't that what we want to see among us? Like, let's not forget. God has provided in extraordinary ways for us as a church. God has provided in extraordinary ways in supernatural ways, for many of you sitting in this room right now, like I know there are a lot of you and you could line up here at the front and you could tell story after story after story after story of how God has supernaturally provided for needs within your life and glory has been given to his name. But isn't it true that the temptation sometimes gets so great for us to depend on things like ministries and methods and materials And all the while we miss the mighty power of God. That all the while we miss this mighty power that we so desperately need. Loved ones, can I remind you, we need the Lord so much. Like we cannot do this without him. You cannot live any part of your life and I can't live any part of my life without the power of the spirit of the living God within me and within you. We need the Lord so much. So what does all of this mean? What does it mean for us today? Two exhortations that I want to leave you with this morning, leave us with together as a church. Here's the first. Number one, 
Let's be a church that pleads with God to do what only God can do. Let's be a church that pleads with God to do what only God can do. Let's be a church that prays for God to save extraordinary numbers of people from all backgrounds and all religions and all circumstances. Like, let's be a church that prays for God to raise up missionaries from this church who will take the word of God to our city and to the region and to the nations that the word and the impact of the word of God would be multiplied many times over. Let's be a church that prays for God to bring supernatural healing. Some of you are here this morning and you have been pleading with God for healing in your life. Let's be a church that prays for God to bring supernatural healing, not just for our own well-being, but so that the name of God is exalted among us. Let's be a church that prays for God to grant deliverance and restoration and reconciliation and wisdom and direction like we've seen so many times through the book of Acts, not just for our sake, but so that many around us would stand in awe and reverence and realize that the one true and living God has done all of these things for us. Like, let's be a church that prays for God to grow within us a deeper passion for prayer. You know, part of my prayer over the last little while has, has been, God, just work within the life of this church. Just work within us and raise up an army of prayers. Raise up an army of people who will continue to come before your throne of grace and realize that anything and everything that we try to do is impossible apart from the filling of the Spirit of God within us that we need the Lord Jesus Christ so, so much. Like we need to understand, loved ones, that prayer is not a ministry we create. It is a passion we grow. And that only by the power of the Spirit of God within us. So let's be a church that is not satisfied with the status quo. Like let's never be satisfied with doing church in a way that doesn't need the power or the presence of the Spirit of God because that is not worth it. We're not a checkmark church. Let's be a church that pleads with God to do what only God can do, which I think means two important things for us. First thing it means is that we need to be ready. We need to be ready. We've seen it all the way through the book of Acts that when the church earnestly prays, it throws them right into the heart of the spiritual battle, like right into the heart of the battleground. And the same is true for us the path of earnest prayer will open doors of great blessing from God. No question about that. Praise the Lord. Many of us could testify to the reality of that. But at the same time, the path to earnest prayer will also open doors of persecution and suffering and challenge like we have never seen before. John Piper says it better than I could. John Piper says everything better than I could. He says this, until you know that life is war, you'll never know what prayer is for. It's true, isn't it? Until you know that life is war, if you are committed to living and pursuing a life of holiness for the Lord Jesus Christ, then you need to understand that Every single day of your life is a spiritual battleground that you walk onto. And the enemy is not going to idly sit by and let you pursue a life of holiness for Jesus Christ. He is going to come after you and he is going to come after me. I don't say this to scare you, I say it to prepare you. And that requires then that we armor up 
that we put on the full armor of God and we walk into that battlefield and we stand firm in the Lord Jesus Christ and in his power for us. Because if we do not understand that our life and our pursuit of holiness in Jesus Christ, if we don't get that that is a war every single day of our lives, then we will never understand the urgency and the necessity and the power that is available to us through prayer. We need the Lord Jesus Christ. So we need to be ready, which I think leads us into this second important thing, and that is this. We need to persevere. That if we're going to step onto this battlefield, that we need to persevere. The path of earnest prayer is not an easy path. And the only way that we persevere, listen, loved ones, the only way, the only way we persevere in this battle is by looking to Jesus. It's by looking to our Lord and Savior who endured the ultimate battle in our place. And he went to the cross and he took the full punishment of our sins. He took all of God's anger and wrath and justice against our sins upon himself. And he endured all of that to the very end. He persevered to the very end so that we could be saved, so that we could be reconciled to God because of his shed blood and his resurrection from the dead that gives us victory. Because he persevered, we are victorious. Like, do you know that? Do you, do you understand that? Do you believe that? Because if we do, then we need to understand that not only do we need to be ready, but we need to persevere. We need to keep going. Let's be a church that pleads with God to do what only God can do. And then finally this, let's be a church who praises God for all that God has done. Let's be a church that praises God for all that God has done. Think about this. How do you get arrested for preaching the gospel? Only then to be released. And the first thing that you do is go and pray for more courage to do the thing that got you thrown into prison in the first place. How do you get arrested for preaching the gospel and then sleep so soundly in your prison cell, just like Peter did, that an angel has to come and punch you in the stomach to wake you up. And that same angel then leads you past a whole group of guards who are standing there trying to guard you and they wouldn't figure out what was going on until the very next morning when it's all too late. Like, how do you get arrested for preaching the gospel and then spend your nights in jail singing hymns and praying to the Lord only then to have that prison decimated by an earthquake that results not only in your release, but then in the salvation of the jailer who put you there? Like, the only way you do any of that, the only way you keep bringing your circumstances that you're going through right now to this living God, the only way you do that is when you are absolutely convinced in your heart and in your mind that the God to whom you pray is the God who controls all of that. Like, the God who is working in all of those circumstances sovereignly for his will and for his glory is the God to whom you pray. Even in the midst of your suffering, your persecution, and whatever circumstance it is that you bring to church with you this morning, that you come to the place in your life where you realize that God is worthy to be trusted. That You can take anything to him, and even in the midst of the pain and the suffering and the confusion and the doubt, that God is worthy to be praised. So when the church earnestly prays, God responds in extraordinary ways it would make just about no sense at all for us to spend all of this time talking about prayer and then not pray. 
So to bring our time to a close this morning, we're going to do something a little bit different than what we normally do. We're going to spend the next few minutes in prayer for God to do what only God can do. And then after that time in prayer, we're going to praise God for all that God has done. And this is not just a a time for me to lead us in prayer and for you to listen in. This is a time for us collectively as the church to pray. It's a time, it's a call for us to pray right now. And in a few minutes, I'm going to invite you to to get into smaller groups of of two, three, four, five, six people, whatever it is, and and we'll get there in just a minute and, and to pray about some specific things. And at the same time, I realize even in saying that, that some of you right now are instantly freaked out by the thought of having to pray with other people. And uh, please understand that um, this is not meant to unnecessarily make you uncomfortable, okay? That's not what we're trying to do. If you'd rather spend these next few minutes just praying by yourself, that's totally okay. Um, but if you want to get into groups of two, three, four, five, six people, that would be great. In fact, I would encourage that. And we're just going to call out to the Lord for some very specific things. And we're going to call out to him as the church, earnestly praying to him to do the things that only he can do. And as, so as we go into this time of prayer, um, I just want to encourage um, this prayer to lead us into that time. And the prayer is simply this, Lord, give us Branford and beyond for the glory of your name. Lord, just give us this city, give us this region, give us the nations for the glory of your name. Like that is something that only God can do. Like we can't do that. We can't do that out of our own energy or enthusiasm or enterprise. We can't do that because of our own education or our own experience. We need the Lord to do that. Lord, give us 120,000 people in this region. Send us to the nations with the gospel in our lifetime for the glory of your name. Like I'm even thinking as we go into this prayer time right now, I'm even thinking of our Christmas services that are coming up in the next few weeks. Christmas Sunday and then Christmas Eve, the day after that, and you have people in your lives that you've been praying for the Lord to save, and you need the Lord to give you courage just to invite them to come to church with you, and let's pray for an extraordinary moving of God's Spirit to save the lost and to heal the broken. 